Okay, and we're live. <laughs> um, my guest today, this is the second episode of Spencer Talks About Stuff, and my guest today is Zach Forrester. And Zach Forrester is a longtime friend. We've been friends since high school. He was the best man at my wedding, and he's done a lot of interesting stuff in his life. So if you want to give yourself a short little introduction, tell people who you are, what you do. Sure. Thanks, Spence. Um, and Spencer, you were actually going to officiate my wedding. Yes. Um, yeah. So and I was going to officiate Zach's wedding. Until it was canceled. Um, or pushed down the road because of COVID, I guess. Yeah. Not canceled. I shouldn't say that. Yeah. Um, hold, hold the mic a little bit closer. Sorry. You're good. You got um, anyway, yeah. Spence and I have been friends since uh, high school days. Freshman year of high school, probably. Yeah. And then we uh, kind of lived next to each other in college, right next to each other for, what, a year or two? Yeah. For a year. In the dorms? Yeah. Yep. And then uh, just been friends ever since. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Took so. a couple classes together and then... We did take a few classes together. Yeah. That was fun. C Criminal Justice 101 with uh, that crazy professor. <laughs> what was his name? Clough? Yes. Yeah. I thought you were uh, thinking of uh, Walsh or Welsh. Oh, no. Walsh. Walsh Dr. was awesome. Yeah. Wal Dr. Was Walsh was awesome. Scottish or something, right? With that Sean Connery accent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he... Uh, What's interesting about him, he's like very conservative yeah. and he he did not care about speaking his mind, even in the atmosphere that goes on in colleges. And I think everybody like really respected him because of that. Sure. No, that's that, that was cool because I took a few uh, political science classes and it was the complete opposite, right? Like he was very conservative and, and wasn't afraid to speak his mind. Yeah. And I had professors that were on the complete opposite side. And, yeah. you know, it is what it is, but it's cool that he felt that uh comfortable being able to kind of be in the minority on that side yeah he uh what's interesting about that guy um so we're talking about a professor that we both had at boise state and he he had to be in his 70s when he was still teaching and i i think he's retired now um but he was a i think he was scottish mm -hmm. and he grew up in the uk and he was actually a policeman in the uk and he like, he would walk around and carry a baton everywhere. And like the, you'd get dropped off on your shift and there'd be one patrol car driving around while you're walking around patrolling and they would come in and check in with you every once in a while and give you coffee and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't think it was so long ago that they didn't have radios, but I remember he, he did talk about the old police, like call boxes. Oh really? Yeah. Where you'd have like the cops would have a key to it. If something was going on, they needed to call for backup. So it's kind of, did you take any, uh, any graduate courses from him? Yes. Yeah. Our, I'm trying to think theories of criminal justice was kind of like the capstone class mm -hmm. where they go through, um, you know, why, uh, why people commit crimes, why policing is the way it is. It was kind of like a high level overview of, um, why things are the way they are in the criminal justice system. And then a huge part of it that he, he had done a ton of research in, um, and he had written a couple of books about was like epigenetics. And, um, I think that's the right word, but like, if you're born with a certain gene, it's not turned on until you're in the right environment for it. So if you have the gene to commit crimes, but you grow up in a good neighborhood, that'll never get turned on. Whereas somebody with the same gene, they grow up in a crappy neighborhood, that gene might get turned on there. So it was, it was. Kind of interesting learning that stuff. Kind of so. like the the Kingsman movie, you know. They, oh, like a like a kill like a CIA kill switch. 
<laughs> Turn on the music. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the uh, shtick of this podcast too, and I'll I'll, I'll open these, um, but I'm having every guest come and bring um, an alcoholic beverage of their choice, and we're going to drink it and talk about it a little bit on the podcast too. So I'll open them while Zach tells us what he brought and why he brought them. <laughs> so it's nothing special, Spence. I just brought uh, Kona Brewing. I'm a huge uh, Kona Brewing fan. Um, I don't know why. I just kind of, uh, I, I had it a few years back and, uh, you know, have just ever since. That's kind of my, my choice. Um, and you brought uh, IPA and a... Oh, yeah, I brought an IPA, a, I think it's like a grapefruit IPA or something, and then just the traditional golden ale, which I think is their big wave golden ale, which is, I think, their most iconic. and, and uh, I think most, like, big restaurants have it on tap. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. But so. uh, anyway, yeah, it's great. I, I'm a big... Um, cheers. I used, cheers. I used to be a big IPA guy. Uh-huh. Um, I, you know, those microbrews kind of around Boise in the Northwest, I, I would always try and hit... Um, one of them up if I was out of town or something and I really liked IPAs and then I just kind of got tired of them um, the hoppiness because I felt like you know they were getting more and more hoppy and um, well, it became like a battle like oh yeah. this one's a double yeah heavy IPA yeah. yeah whatever and so now I'm just fine drinking just regular Bud Light yeah Kona well that's something I talked about <laughs> <laughs> on the on the first podcast with Debbie like we talked about ciders, but also I'm I'm a huge fan of Coors Light, and I think uh, like a hot day in the summer in totally. the backyard, a freezing cold Coors Light is perfect Absolutely. for me. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. So. Um, yeah, and and I kind I'm I'm the exact same way, and I could do the same with with this, and you just take several drink half of it in, in one, you know, gulp kind yeah, of thing because yeah. it's so refreshing. Whereas there's really, some beers that are like 10%. And... Yeah, you can't really do that. I had a, um, like a, I think, what 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 are they now? Double IPAs, but I had a yeah, Sierra I don't Nevada even know. and it was an extra IPA. It was like yeah. in between a double and a regular IPA. Yeah. And I mean, you drink that stuff and then once it goes warm, it gets warm or it's not cold anymore. It doesn't taste think, good anymore. Oh, yeah. it's terrible. Yeah. I warm. can't drink it. And the IPA I'm drinking right now is not warm, thank God. <laughs> How is it? It's a little warm. <laughs> I'm just joking. Is it good? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's delicious. Oh, that's um, good. I do like, yeah, like a, if I'm going to drink a heavier beer, like a hazy IPA, I think is good, or like a tropical. Yeah. And this is like that. It's an orange, starfruit orange IPA. So. Yeah, it's a little lighter. Their longboard, I think it's their, their longboard IPA. That one's pretty good. It's not as hoppy, but... Uh, but to your point, yeah, the the hazy IPAs are good, but everything, you know, that I just I don't know. It is what it is. But yeah, people are, yeah, I don't know. I like when I when people are super critiquey of beers and stuff. Yeah. It's like how much of that is real and how much of it is a right. is a show. <laughs> right. They're like, exactly. oh yeah, I'm so into it. Right. It's like uh, I just like drinking Coors Light. <laughs> right. Um, or uh, Natty Light or yeah, you know, Keystone. Yeah. Keystone. Oh my cool. gosh, you know. So there's kind of a weird trend happening right now with the uh, like Trulies. And yeah. you, do you guys like those? Um, I you know the the seltzer water flavored water. I think they're good. Alex is a big fan. She likes Trulies. She likes White Claws. Um, I don't. I feel like every sort of brand has their own version well, of it. We Debbie and I were walking through Winco yesterday, and they have um, Corona has their own version. Bud Light has their own version now. I think Natty Light has Natter their own days. version. 
No, well, it's those, not. Those are different. Natter Days is a lemonade flavored oh. beer. And then I saw, uh, I think uh, Budweiser has a Bud Light version of that, and it's like kiwi strawberry or something. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. Which I actually, I mean, well, on my on my bachelor <laughs> party, I think Tony bought some Natter Days or something. He did yeah. Yeah, and I. They weren't bad. <laughs> you, you can't drink a ton of them. You can drink one of them. I mean, later in their night, later in the night, they're probably pretty good. But yeah, they're, but they're very sweet. Yeah. That's kind of the hard thing to. You can't drink a ton of them because they're yeah. so sweet. Yeah, no way. Um, okay, so before before we started this, we were talking a little bit about travel, and I know you've traveled internationally a ton. And I kind of wanted to ask, um, you know, like what your what's your favorite place to travel to? What was the most interesting place you traveled to? Um, and then, you know, where do you guys want to go? I know you guys are planning on going to Hawaii for your honeymoon. Um, and we could probably chat a little bit about that. But, like, what are some of the cool places that you've gotten to travel? Um, and why have you traveled there? Because it was your your career that took you there. Yeah. So um, when I was living in Washington, D.C., I was working on Capitol Hill and um, we would travel probably, I don't know, maybe once a quarter uh, abroad. And it was anywhere from just kind of a, a trip to a, um, they call them staff deals, the uh, staff delegation trips. And you have a sponsor, which is traditionally a foreign country, or uh, you can do a party or something like that. And um, what they do is they kind of sponsor your trip and they bring you to their country, China, Taiwan, Europe, wherever. Um, and you know, you meet with government officials, you meet with political parties, um, you know, and, and you just have an open dialogue for about a week about issues that they usually have a um, kind of a, a sponsor or not a sponsor, excuse me, a theme on the trip. And when I was traveling. I was doing, uh, working on military and kind of foreign affairs issues. Um, and so all of ours would be focused around defense or foreign affairs or commerce or trade or whatever. And, um, you know, it's very interesting because from a staff level, I mean, as a staffer, you help your boss kind of in, inform them making decisions. And so you attend the same meetings for the most part, and you write memos and you do all this stuff that, you know, they go to you and ask, Hey, can you get me some information on, on issue X, Y, and Z? And so being able to be over in whatever part of the world firsthand and then being able to come back and just saying, Hey, you know, um, military readiness in country X is, is a big issue. We shouldn't cut it in this year's version of NDA or whatever, you know, you, you, there's various, uh, so they, so they kind of, you're kind of the boots on the ground for the um, senator that you were working for. Yeah, for the most part. Um, and just gather some information. And it's not like, you're not like a CIA agent going and gathering information. You're like a... No, it's a sponsored trip and you're in a group. They You, you go from point A to point B on a bus. Um, yeah. You know, and you usually have, in, in some countries are different than others. Um, for obvious reasons, I was in, we were in Europe and we were being sponsored by a party over there, essentially. And, um, by like a political party mm -hmm. or it was, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember what it was, but it was, a um, we were, it was a German political party Okay. and, uh, we did a trip. It was during the height of, um, Russia's kind of, uh, interaction with quotes, like Ukraine, with Ukraine and Crimea. Yeah. And, um, you know, they were obviously very concerned and it was sur talk surrounding, 
NATO and, you know, but it was kind of mixed with, um, you know, stuff going on inside the country as well, you know, kind of thing. So um, we were in uh, Munich, then we went to Brussels and then we went to Berlin and kind of that was a, you know, and we do it all within four or five days. So it's kind of nonstop. Yeah. Constantly on the go. Yeah. Um, And that was that was a super fun trip. I think it was very informative. Um, I was kind of. Uh, brand new to uh, working over there. And so being able to be part of a trip like that within your first, you know, two or three months working on Capitol Hill, I think it was, it was a great experience. And it's gotta be like exciting. And it was super exciting because you're meeting with, um, you know, members of NATO and you go to NATO headquarters and you meet with them and, um, you know, these guys in Brussels. mm -hmm, Okay. Yep. And, you know, part of that part of what else is in Brussels is the EU. Yeah. And so we had meetings with the EU and stuff about um, that same very issue, that very same issue and then other stuff going on. And so it's, it was super interesting, um, you know, and you have people, uh, some, some trips are more unique than others. Um, a lot of them you have, uh, and, and there are people that um, have gone on tens of hundreds of more trips than I have. Yeah. Um, but uh, in my personal experience, there are some trips that are more unique than others because you have more people coming with you that don't just work on Capitol Hill. They work in think tanks. Oh. Um, like, do people from private companies in America sometimes go on those trips too? So we did. We had one, uh, when we were in China, we had a, um, a gentleman that worked for a big Fortune 500 company uh, come with us and... Um, you know, he worked he worked on some of their international development team or whatever, and so he was with us for a little bit. Not entirely sure how he was on the trip or how he got involved, but uh, yeah, because I don't think he was part of their government affairs team or anything like that in D.C. So, uh, so how many could be wrong? How many people from like Capitol Hill were there? So again, it varies. Uh, they try and they try and coordinate these these um, these travel or these trips around. Uh, recess on Capitol Hill. So when Congress uh, goes home for a week or bre- breaks, they, yeah. they go to recess, right? Yeah. And um, it's usually around holiday weekends or holiday weeks. It's usually, you know, the House is different than the Senate. The House breaks, I think, every three or five weeks or something. They have a one-week recess break. The Senate's a little different. And um, the majority in each party, essentially, so the Republicans in the Senate and the Democrats in the House set those schedules. Gotcha. And so um, they usually try and coordinate. And so that's why sometimes you'll have one um, that's predominantly House members because they're on recess that week or Senate members because they're on recess that week and the House isn't or whatever. Yeah. Um, so um, it, it just kind of varies on, on congressional staff. Uh, you know, you can, I've been on trips anywhere from five total to 20. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so how many, do you know how many of those you went on? Yeah, I was on, uh, oh gosh, probably not that many like staff t- Like 20? No, or... no, 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 under 10, less than 10. Okay, but yeah. you, you also, instead of going, so you went to Europe, and was that just one trip? Yeah. Or did you go? Yeah. So your and other then, trips, I know you China, went to China a few times. We focused on, yeah, just Asia. Um, so what, you went to China, Thailand? Nope. Uh, or Taiwan. Taiwan. China Sorry. and Taiwan. Yeah. As China would say, China and China. China and China, <laughs> yes. And that was kind of the Taiwan trip was obviously the big, um, that was a big focus on because um, 
they have obviously the U.S. in in China relations are very you know uh, delicate as is and and whether or not they recognize Taiwan as an independent country is is very uh, contentious it's, as well. Well, so, it's controversial too because like I think is Kashmir. Is that right? Kashmir is in between Pakistan and India in the northwest corner, I believe. Pakistan, India, and China, right? It, yeah. Like where all the all three borders converge. And I know, so this is just something interesting. Google Maps changes the map on the website depending on what country you're in. Oh, so really? if you're in India, sure. they show it how the Indian border, how the Indians want the border to be. Yeah. In Pakistan, they show it like that. And then especially in China, they don't want to piss the Chinese off. Sure. Um, Have you ever watched that Vice News documentary on Kashmir? No. It's no. awesome. It's, you know how they do those little like 30 minute, 45 minute episodes? Or, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, they did one on, on Kashmir and in between, um, you know, it was really, the focus was really on, you know, India and Pakistan. Yeah. And um, they traveled there and they interviewed people and they showed demonstrations and stuff. Anyway, it was a really, it was a really cool thing. And it really kind of, um, you know, from a 30,000 foot view, really defined kind of what the big issue was between both countries on I think, that space. I think Vice, Vice was so cool. I mean, I haven't checked them out in a while because... I think they started to get a little too political sure. and push their agenda, but they had some really awesome documentaries. I think they went to North Korea like three or four times. Yeah. And it was really cool to see. Uh, I think Shane Smith is the guy that runs Vice. So he went by himself one time, and then I think somebody else went at one point. And then Vice like hired Dennis Rodman to go there. Oh, really? Yeah, like with the um, Harlem Globetrotters. And they did something with the North Korean national team playing the Harlem Globetrotters and like Kim Jong-un was there watching the basketball game. It was the craziest oh, thing, that's but, cool. but they used the basketball game as an excuse to bring like cameras and sure. stuff with them. Yeah. And then that's how they did the documentary. Yeah. So. There was also another one that they did. I wasn't it. Um, and I think you and I've talked about this before, but it was nor wasn't it North Korean labor camps within China or something? Oh, oh no! It was North Korean labor camps in Russia. In Russia, that's they were what it across. Was. They were that's to the north, in Russia, which North Korea shares a border with Russia. Nobody ever thinks about that, and they were um, basically using like slave labor to cut down trees for logging. Yeah. For North Korea. Yeah. That was super was interesting. Nuts. Yeah. And they tried to get in and interview people in part of the camps, and they had to take like what 24 hours it took 24 hours to get in to the camp yeah, just in yeah, general because yeah. they had to take all these different trains and... well you think about like how far into um what's that like siberia or whatever and i don't think they crossed from north korea into russia they went to russia first and right. went to the border yeah 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 very interesting have you been to russia no that was one of the places i wanted to go so um i that was one of the places i wanted to go t when i was studying abroad too in college mm -hmm. but I mean, just to plan a weekend trip over there, the entry requirements and stuff like that, it just for a 21 year old college student, it just wasn't, you know, a priority. So but, you have to, you can't just have your passport. You have to like apply for a visa, right? To, yeah. You have to get a visa. You have to get, um, in quote unquote invited. Yeah. And that can be from a hotel. You book a hotel and then your hotel can, oh, yeah, I and see. it was interesting. Cause we were, I was uh, at a barbecue, um, over Memorial day and, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine and he was really into 
uh, Eastern European history and Russian history, and yeah. especially when it came from the transition of, um, you know, what was it, Tsar Alexander II or whatever, to the communist Russia or uh-huh. Soviet Union or whatever after the revolution oh. in 1917. Yeah. Um, anyway, and uh, he actually spent some time over there. And uh, anyway, it's long story short, super cool story. Um, but him and I were talking about, you know, just kind of how you, it's not a trip that you can just kind of say, hey, let's go for a weekend. Even if you're over there, it takes a little more planning than that. See, I, I think this there's certain places around the world that interest me. And Russia Russia is very interesting to me, but not as interesting as some other places. Um, before the U.S. did their airstrike on Soleimani, my brother-in-law and I were talking about going to Iraq. And I don't know if I told you that or not, but we were planning on going to... Uh, Erbel, which mm-hmm. is like in the Kurdistan sure. area. Um, and like you tell people that somebody just in the United States, oh, my brother-in-law and I are going to go to Iraq for like vacation. They think you're nuts. And they're like, what? You can't go to Iraq. And it's, if you look up Erbel there and the Kurds and Kurdistan, they don't really associate with the Southern part of Iraq. Um, and they, they're their own, what do you call it? Ethnic group, I guess mm-hmm. in the North. Sure. Um, and they, I think, Eventually, they want to be independent. Um, but for some reason, that hasn't... I mean, you know more about Middle Eastern history than I do. Um, well, that's debatable. But yeah, there's like... Debbie and I went to Bosnia and Serbia. Yeah. And yeah. like people in the United States are like, oh my God, isn't it like a war-torn country? And it's it's like, yeah, there was some stuff that happened in the 90s, some really terrible stuff. Um, but they, they've kind of all learned from it and moved on. And they're trying to sure. get yep. back on the world stage and... Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, as you just mentioned, you guys spent some, I think what a year ago or two years ago, you guys spent some significant time over in the Balkans. Yeah. Oh yeah. We were in Serbia, uh, Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina for, um, that was probably half of our trips so 10 days, maybe in those places. It's, you know, that's to your point, it's one of those areas that's super cool. Cause we, um, I was able to travel over there, uh, when I was going to school in Prague. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had this little core group of friends that, um, you know, we would kind of travel around with and, and that I met completely uh, had no idea who they were before we moved over there. Yeah. And we just kind of meshed pretty well together because, uh, you know, we were all kind of into the same thing, Eastern European history, Eastern European politics, and just kind of their place in the world today. Yeah. And uh, one of the, the girls that was part of our little core group, um, she was actually from Melbourne, Australia. And um, her family grew up in, I can't remember if she was born uh, in Croatia, but her family's originally from Croatia. Okay. Croatia. And uh, they were part of the, the exodus, as you will, um, from Croatia to Australia uh, at the start of the Bosnian war in the early nineties. And it's... that's very interesting. I wonder how many Croatians went to Australia because yeah. it seems like Idaho got a ton of Bosnian refugees. Sure. Um, cause we went to high school with kids from Bosnia. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, I do know that there was a pretty big population of, uh, I don't know if it was strictly just Croats, but you know, Balkan, some Balkan population that moved down to Australia. Yeah. And uh, anyway, it was it was super cool because um, when we were over there, we went and visited her grandparents. Oh, no way. Yeah. And so we flew into Zagreb and then we spent a few days in Zagreb and then we took a bus and it was about, you know, a five hour bus uh, bus ride from 
Zagreb to where her parent or her grandparents live, which is a, a little town on the Adriatic called um, Shibnik. It's about oh, okay. um, 45 minutes north of Split. Oh, okay. Yep. And uh, so, and it was great because you could see the the countryside. And I mean, it's a it's a gorgeous country. And well, what's what's mind blowing to me the the reason I like going to that area, like the Adriatic. And I'd love to go to like Egypt too, and eventually go to Turkey. I know mm-hmm. we have a good friend Derek who spent a lot of time in Turkey and Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, but being there and just imagining what it was like during the Roman Empire, and I've oh, been sure. like I got super into Roman history because we went to Roman ruins in like this tiny little rinky-dink town in Croatia. Yeah, and it's like I didn't know that they had a like a mini coliseum in this place in Croatia. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just you know on the Italian peninsula. But tons and tons of Roman, like elite Roman people had like vacation homes in Croatia. And obviously Croatia was its own state in the Roman Empire too. Um, I think Dalmatia or... Yeah, it's super interesting. There's a ton of history over there that I don't think people really, um, you know, fully understand or realize, I guess. Is well, I don't, think we, I don't think we get that education, Sure. especially like in Idaho. It's like, sure. what kind of world history did you get for education? Yeah, and, and well, you, you learn about the Roman Empire, right? And um, stuff like that and, and Greece and Athens and the role the Athenians played. And, and, but you never really uh, fully understand, you know, just kind of that, that region as well because they were mixed up and all that. And, um, you know, it shows today and, and it's, a, it's just a fascinating area to go and visit. And I would encourage anyone to get in a car, and I, which I think is what you guys do, oh, yeah. right? I think that's the best way to travel internationally, yeah. especially if you're going to be in the European Union or around because it's not hard you know, crossing the border to a non-EU country. Sure. Um, it's literally like going from Idaho to Oregon or Idaho to Washington for the well, most part. when you're in the EU. Sure. But if you yeah, leave yeah. the yeah. EU, you have to get your passport stamped sure. and whatever. But yeah. Well, we, uh, you know, it was interesting because um, part of what we did when we were down there is uh, we took a bus from Split to Medjugorje, which is on the southwestern side of Bosnia. So we actually oh. went into Bosnia. And um, it was... It, it was fascinating just to have that experience of crossing the border. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you go and you visit all these little border towns and it's, you know, at that point in time, it was what, 2011, 2012, I think. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you go to these little towns and, and people are still living in these apartments with bullet holes just lined up oh, and down yeah. the buildings. And, you know, it was interesting because we crossed into uh, Bosnia and we were on this little Bosnian, we were in this little Bosnian town and the uh, Bosnian officials came on on the bus and took all of our passports and just walked off. Isn't that it's so nuts. weird? Yeah, that and happened to me. That you feel uneasy a little bit when right? we were yeah. in Ukraine. They did that. To yeah, us. and you have no idea where they're going. Yeah, and uh, we probably sat in the bus for probably thirty minutes, maybe forty five minutes. Yeah, and you have no idea where they're taking your passport. Like, and that's basically your ID to get back into the United States, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, I was sitting right next to my friend um, and we were kind of texting back and forth. And she was telling me that, um, you know, during, during the war, um, the Serbs came in and just totally massacred the entire population within this town. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it, they like took no prisoners and it was just, it was very brutal. And you look up and we were parked right next to like a daycare or an elementary school uh-huh. and you see all these kids like running around and you're just like man i mean it kind of hits home like 
how real it is. How real it is. And do these kids have parents? Like, did they move here after the war? Like, yeah. you know, how involved were these guys? I mean, um, you know, so it's just, it's, it's so different. And, but it's, it's so fascinating to see. And, so you just reminded me. So when Debbie and I were in Bosnia, we, we stayed in Sarajevo for a couple nights. Um, and we took a tour. It, like, if you go on um, TripAdvisor or just like any travel website, they kind of give you tips and tricks of what to do. And there is a group that meets at this, I don't know, it's some building that's super recognizable in downtown Sarajevo every Sunday at... Was it the building that burned, basically? No, 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 no. I know what you're talking about. It was not that building. It was a different one. Um, like a older, older building, like built in the 1800s or something. But you meet there... And a girl takes you on a tour, and it's called the War Scars Tour. Oh, that's cool. And so she takes you around the city and shows you stuff that's still destroyed from... So I think the I think the siege on Sarajevo, it was over a year, but I, it was like 1994 maybe. Mm -hmm. And then... Is that right? I don't know off the top of my head. Because Yugoslavia broke up in like 1991... I think Bosnia got their independence in like 92. And then the war kind of happened from like 92 mm. to 95, something like that. Sure. But this girl was, she had to be a little bit older than us, but she was alive during all of this. And so she, you know, kind of knows where all these spots are. And like you said, there's, she takes you to these buildings that are just riddled with bullet holes. Um, and there are spots all around the city where unexploded mortar shells yes. are, are yes. stuck in the concrete. But they've kind of turned them into these little art pieces. And so it's really cool. Like they take you around and show you all this stuff. And for people who don't know, Sarajevo is a city where there are there's a huge Jewish population. There's a huge Muslim population. Muslim yeah. population. And then there's a huge um I I don't want to say like Episcopalian, but like I think they're cat no, I, I think it's Catholics. Yeah. I think there's a huge Catholic population too. Yeah. So Sarajevo, they, the nickname of the city is like the meeting of cultures. And so you can stand in a Jewish cemetery while looking at a Catholic church while listening to the Muslim call to prayer. So it's kind of, it's a very cool place. Yeah. And there's over 500 mosques in Sarajevo, which like Debbie and I, the first time we saw a mosque, I'd never seen one before. And it's like a very unique building because it's a circular thing and there's a big spire. And I don't really know what all that stuff is sure. for it. But it's like, we, we were looking at it. We're like, what is that building? And we're, I was like, oh my God, it's a mosque. That's yeah. crazy. It was just cool to see yeah. in person because I'd never seen one in person before. It is. It I will say it is cool um, going to, because uh, when we were actually in Morocco, that, would, that was uh. kind of the first um, Muslim predominated uh, like country, you country were in. I've been in. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, you know, it was interesting because you can be standing in t in the town and you hear their call to prayer, and it just—I mean, it just goes across the entire city. It's, it's pretty. Nuts. It's pretty cool. It's, it's crazy. awesome. It's awesome. But you walk through. It, it's also nuts because, uh, again, you know, you realize you're in the 21st century, and you walk to um, like the corner street, and there's four cafes on each side. Yeah. And like they'll say, oh, the northwest one is for uh, all rich men. The northeast Whoa. one is for all poor men. The you know southwest one is for all rich women, and then the southeast one is for all poor women. Whoa. You know, and it was just like this is nuts. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it's just again, it's the 21st century, and, and you don't kind of realize that, you know, if that stuff still happens, or if he was, you know, 
But yeah, I, I mean, obviously, like there's there's certain things that certain religions do that, um, it, not that they do that in those religions everywhere those religions are present, but some places in Europe, like Debbie and I. I mean, Debbie wears tank tops because yeah. it's hot and we travel and obviously like we exercise a lot. And so she has tank tops and we're walking around. It might have been Prague or somewhere. And we walked into a church and this old lady came up and like, she's like, she can't be in here. She has to put a cover her shoulders. And it's like, whoa, I didn't know that. Right. Like you had to be that respectful. And then there was also, um, we went to a monastery when we were in Bosnia. It was like really close to the Croatian border. Um, the town was called Trebinje. And we went to the monastery because you can tour it and drink wine and stuff because the monks make wine there. And when you go in the church, you have to have your shoulders covered. You have to have pants on. And they have stuff there because they know so many travelers like go through that corridor Mm -hmm. that they have like shawls that women can put over their shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because when we were in Shibinik, it it was it's an older population. It's not a very popular town. If you blink, you're going to miss it kind of thing. Yeah. And um you know, all the older women still walk around every day and they're still kind of in these black robes and their heads covered. And they almost look like, probably shouldn't say this, but they almost look like kind of nuns type thing, yeah. you know, just walking around. And Well, I think um, nuns, I mean, nuns covered their hair for a reason because, I mean, all of those are Abrahamic religions. Sure. And at one point, women had to have their hair covered. Right, so. right. Yeah, it's it's uh, just going back real fast to talking about the war and the impact that you still see today over there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I also remember, I mean, when you take a five hour bus ride, the bus obviously stops for bathroom breaks. Right. Yeah. And so, um, I, I just remember we uh, stopping halfway through the trip, trying to get down to the Shibanik town and, um, you know, you, you step out of the bus and you see signs and it's like a direct path to and from the bathroom. Yeah. But you see signs that you're like, don't leave the trail because, you know, there's still a big, um, the government's still putting this restoration project or whatever to searching for landmines that were just yes. planted all, it covers the country. Everywhere. And so they're really encouraging people. Granted, it's been 20 plus years. But they're just like, please stay on the path. We don't I, know if there's active landmines somewhere. And I think I saw something recently that said they still find they find like one landmine a week. Yeah. In it's either in um, Croatia, Bosnia, or um, Serbia. Serbia. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. It's nuts. It's cool. Did you did you spend time in Sarajevo? I didn't. We um, I didn't have time. Yeah. I would love to go back over there um, just because it's so fascinating. Um, but it's, we it's, never made it to Sarajevo. It's cool to see a city that's like just starting its recovery from sure. something. And they've they've poured so much money into infrastructure. Like the, the roads in Bosnia and Croatia are way better than the roads in the United States. Sure. Um, but they, they built like this brand new mall. They have all these new shopping centers. And they're, they're like the downtown life there is kind of thriving, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Yeah. So if you ever want to go to an area, um, and I haven't been, I was just told. So when I was studying in Prague, um, I was I was uh, part of like their history program uh-huh. uh, at Charles University, and our professor, who was this brilliant, um, like he was probably forty, but he was very trendy. He was he was a really cool, super knowledgeable guy. Yeah. Um, I mean, he grew up in Prague and in Czechoslovakia during the Cold War and stuff like that, and so he knows a lot about this stuff. 
And he was telling us, um, he was like, hey, I'm going to go spend the weekend lecturing in uh, Minsk in Belarus. Oh. And he was like, you guys should come with me. See, that's a country that nobody thinks about. Exactly. And so we started looking into it. And it's it's another one of those countries that you can't just, you know, hop across the border. It, the entry requirements are, it's, I wouldn't say it's difficult, but it's yeah. just, it takes a little bit, right? Yeah. And so long story short, you weren't able to do it. But but part of what he was telling us is that, um, you know, I think uh, Belarus has the longest sitting or serving, air quotes, president yeah. since the fall of the, the Cold War, since the fall of the Soviet Union. Whoa. Uh, I think his name is um, Alexander Lukashenko or something. Okay. And he's been, he's the first president of Belarus and he's the only president of Belarus. That's crazy. And he was... Uh, air quotes, elected, uh, elected yeah. into office <laughs> in 1994. Do and you think, is Belarus truly independent or do you think no, that they're like a puppet I, of I Russia? Mean, or? I don't know a whole lot, but I, I'm no expert or foreign policy expert or history expert, but I don't think, I mean, you, you can't, right? Yeah. But my story was going to, he's like, if you want to see what it was like living in Eastern Europe during the Cold War, go to Mints because nothing's Whoa. changed. Whoa. Yeah. Interesting. And it was super cool because... Uh, I mean, just talking about it, like I say, like I said, he grew up in Czechoslovakia during the Cold War. Granted, that was one area that was a little more progressive than other countries within the Eastern Bloc. Yeah. Um, but he was still actively part of what was going on over there during that time, right? So he knows yeah. what it's like and um, like what the conservative states were, and obviously, sure. like Prague is a big city, and so it was a little more. It was progressive, and, pro yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, you had these massive. Uh, uprisings or protests whatever you want to call them throughout yeah. these various countries throughout well they the had cold huge, war they had huge demonstrations uh, in 68 the velvet revolution yep, yep. and then um in 1980 uh prague spring yeah and you know uh, budapest was another one uh in well, 1956 yeah they like massacred people in the square in front of parliament yeah. in budapest and then um they within hours and after the uh uprisings in budapest uh Nikolai Ceausescu and his wife were shot in the head. And it was like... Who was who that? Sorry. He was the um, the premier or whatever of, of Hungary. Oh, 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 gotcha. The puppet, I guess, if you will. Gotcha. Of, of, that uh, they kind of propped up to be the president. Mm -hmm. And he was, he was, I think, granted, again, I'm no expert, but I think he was a pretty brutal dictator. And really? Oh, well... The Hungarians were very happy to see his execution. So was it... I'm trying to think when... Uh, you know what? It was during World War II. I know that there was kind of a faction of it, like right-wing extremists that took took over uh, Budapest, like during World War II or after World War II. Um, but there's there's an awesome monument on the Danube. I think it's like right behind the parliament. Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe. They, uh, they lined a bunch of people up and shot them like on the banks of the Danube so their bodies would fall in, but they made them take their shoes off for some reason. And so what they've done is they've made all these metal little shoe Shoes. monuments. Oh, that's cool. And people like put flowers in them and stuff, yeah. but it's looking at that dude. It gives you chills. It's totally. crazy to think about. So, um, I didn't do this when I was in Budapest and I don't know if you did, but I do know that there's this, uh, museum, I think outside the city that is it the communist? Yeah. The KGB. Uh, Oh, we didn't do that. We did the communist one in, um, Prague. Okay. That you told us to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, there's this cool, I don't I, I don't know if cool is the right word, but well, this it's very interesting, interesting yeah, yeah. Um, museum, and I think it's outside the city, 
that uh, you can go to, and it was like a place where, I don't know if it was the KGB headquarters of, of Hungary or whatever, um, or if it was just kind of a, a place that they took political dissidents or whatever. Yeah. Um, but uh, but anyway, they've made it into a museum today, and I hear it's it's worth going, making the drive out there, and it's yeah. super cool. And uh, I don't know, I just I think anything Eastern Europe, Cold War is just so it's, fascinating. It's such a it's such an interesting place because we're so far removed from like the American Revolution. Yeah, where their revolution literally just happened. It, it's Croatia became an independent state in 1991. Mm-hmm. That's so bizarre. Yeah, that they were forced like all these different ethnic groups, the Croats, the Serbs, and the uh, Slovenes were forced to like live together mm-hmm. and be under one government. And they didn't want to, they wanted yeah. to be two independent States, which is, I mean, in the current political climate, it's kind of interesting to think about yeah. like over the course of history, how many different factions of bigger States wanted to earn their independence? Like Ukraine. I mean, they speak kind of Russian. I mean, Ukrainian is very close to Russian. I know Russians and Ukrainians can understand each other, but Russia wanted to be its own thing. They didn't want to be under the rule of Russia. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's like, there's other parts of Russia, like Dagestan. People think Dagestan is its own country, but it's not. It's part of Russia. It's just like a Russian state, but I think they have their own cultures. They're, they do stuff different than how they would do it. Like in Moscow. Yeah. Right. So no, I think, um, kind of making a full circle, I think traveling to Russia and going to Moscow and St. Petersburg and stuff like that, I think, would be so cool and uh you know have you did you ever watch that documentary on netflix about the czar czar alexander and his kind of his no. fall and no but I, I i know a lot about world war one yeah so it was it, it was just super interesting because i you know i didn't know a whole lot about it and um just rasputin's role you know there's this fictionalized kind of um image that so, so do you should we give a recap if if people are listening who don't know who rasputin is <laughs> should we talk about i mean we can he, if you okay want. and anastasia and i i don't know about anastasia so anastasia was one of um you know uh it was one of um uh, czar nicholas's daughters one of his like five daughters and then his son uh-huh um and just I think it was just so interesting the story is interesting in that his son had uh, a disease. I think it was oh, the, oh, oh, uh, the okay. blood, Is, uh, some blood he, hemophilia. Hemophilia. Yeah. hemophilia. And, um, who, hang on. Sorry. But who is Anastasia? Is that the name of the kid? Yeah. That's the name of one of his daughters. But the, but so his daughter had this son. No, 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 no. It was, that was just one of the four or five daughters that okay, Zar Nicholas so, had, but it was his son who had hemophilia mm-hmm. and his son was kind of between uh, Tsar Alexander and his wife, they kind of put him up on this pedestal because he is the heir to Tsar Alexander, yep. right? And um, he, they found out that he had hemophilia. And so what happened was Rasputin... He- hemophilia means you bleed very easily. Correct. Your blood doesn't clot. Correct. Yeah. So they weren't, they weren't basically allowing him to really live a life, right? I mean, he fell down. He could potentially bleed to death. Yeah, and so they were very careful with him. They were him. very careful on what he did. And because the threat of, of the family losing the throne, right, if if he were to die. Yep. 
And um, so Rasputin came into the picture. I don't know. He was kind of like a wanderer, I guess. I, he was like a he was like a homeless dude or yeah. a vagrant. Yes. Um, witchy guy. Yes. And he's there's kind of this. I, I don't. I, I wouldn't know how you describe it, but he came into the picture because he was able to essentially convince Tsar Alexander's wife that he could save their son. So right? so this is people. People <laughs> should seriously go Google. Rasputin, yeah. he is the most bizarre character from history because he whittled his way into this uh, Fam- the, pl- the the royal family yes. that was running Russia during yes. World War One before World War One. Oh, it was before World War One. Um, but he convinced. Well, I guess during World War One too. Yeah, he convinced the family that he had like uh, magic powers, and the son would stop bleeding. When Rasputin was, was around, present. when yes. he was around, yes. and then when Rasputin would leave, the son would have issues again, yes. but which has never been explained. Correct. However, uh, part of the thing that because there was this real, it created this tension between uh, Alexander's kind of his political uh, inner circle, right? That was kind of his advising him. Like, what is this dude doing with your what, wife? What the heck is going on? Yeah. You know, kind of thing. And, um, so he was kind of on his wife's side there to begin with because he saw what was happening. But during all this upheaval with world war one that was going on and then the, um, and, and actually the start, well, quote unquote start, but the movement for the revolution in Russia really happened because of the treatment that the soldiers were getting during World War One, he basically right. Am I? Oh, I'm. I'm. I am unsure. Like they weren't. Okay. Like the guys on the front line. Yeah, weren't they getting weren't getting the, relieved and like the ammunition they needed. They were out there starving. They weren't getting the support they needed, and it was just like you know they were throwing them. Uh, you know, they just they they weren't really. They didn't feel like you know they thought it was bullshit. They didn't have support from the Russian government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're fighting for this cause whether or not they believe in it or not, but you know, I mean they're basically just putting their lives on the line for nothing. Yeah. And um anyway, and so it's very interesting because uh Rasputin then started to work his way in to your to your point, the the royal family and then um, I think that he started influencing political decisions. Correct. He was like yes. a homeless dude yes. who people thought could do magic. Yes. In the in the 20th century. Yes. And he was pulling strings, kind of like I mean, I don't know what his intent ever was. I don't think anybody knows because he was just this transient homeless. Like he did have a wife, I think, uh-huh. but he wasn't. He wasn't from Moscow or St. Petersburg. Uh, I think he was from central Russia or but Siberia. Or I think it just goes to show, like, even if um, someone's in political power, granted that the czars, I think they were dictators. I mean, they weren't, like, elected. No, Is that it, was, right? it was a typical, like, you know, what you would have in, what, the medieval times where you have a royal family. and Yeah, so um, so they were just normal people. It's not like they were... I mean, I don't know if that gal was super educated, but for somebody in the 20th century to believe... She was actually part of some, I think, a royal family in Germany or or England, I think. She oh, wasn't Russian. She wasn't Russian. No, she, she married in... She was from... And I could be totally wrong, but if I remember correctly, she was from a royal family in Central or Western Europe. Uh-huh. And, well, actually, wasn't he... Uh, Tsar Alexander was like cousins to... Uh, like somebody in king france george or, or no no uh god who was it the king in in england at the time 
that's so interesting. When you start looking into who's in charge oh, like of different countries. It's like some incest pool. <laughs> it's such an incest pool. Yeah. And it's like, okay, we're going to extend an olive branch to right. France. And uh, the French minister's wife or the French minister's daughter is going to marry yes. our cousin. Yes. And it's, yeah, it's so bizarre it's how they crazy. had all these weird. And that's, I think that's kind of why World War One got started because the, there were so many different political alliances mm-hmm. that were like all, like, I don't know what you, 15 different countries said if you attack this country we'll protect you but if they attack that country we'll protect that country and there were like hundreds of these alliances set up so when world war one broke out it was like chaos right yeah so yeah it's it's interesting it's an interesting story um because you know like i said the media like has this not the media, but I guess Hollywood. I don't know. Has Hollywood this, or like history books? Or? Yeah. Has this kind of weird, I don't, would you call it an obsession with Rasputin just because I like, think for good. Disney made that Anastasia movie and Rasputin was involved in that. Oh, and it was I like a know. cartoon or something. I don't know. I, I, I think, know, I, I for think the record, he... I've never seen it. <laughs> yeah, you have. <laughs> uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think he's popular for good reason because it is such a bizarre story. It is, um, yeah, for sure. But we can, if you want to move on from World War One and stuff, we can. I can, whatever you want to do. Okay, so, um, so Zach, you know, has a bunch of knowledge about the Middle East and, um, no, 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 I'm just saying, like, that's something that you're interested in. And sure. So, what, you graduated with a degree in? I was actually just a history degree, uh, but I had a focus. I guess we had to declare focus on Eastern Europe. Uh-huh. Um, but so. you, I, you have a ton of books, though, about the Middle East, too. And yeah. And you know I about mean, Middle Eastern history. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's just, uh, you know, something I like reading about, I guess. Yeah. And you recently finished your MBA. I did about six months ago. And you decided to get out of politics like direct politics yeah so uh i don't like i'm on the private side of things now yeah so yeah so been more kind of in the financial industry as opposed to foreign affairs or yeah which is whatever is cool and i think a lot of people do that um they get into capitol hill and they see what it's like and you know they're like i don't really want to do this anymore and i i feel like i've heard that story from multiple people yeah yeah i think it is i think that you've got those when i first moved out there i thought that it was going to be kind of a long-term move for me yeah um because i was obsessed with it i loved it um and you know people there was there was kind of this saying uh whether it was a formal or informal saying that if if you're out in dc for if you can get in and out if you leave DC within five years or something, then you're out for good, right? Yeah, you don't move yeah. back or whatever. You're not a career politician. Or... But if you're if you're back there for more than five years, then the chances are high that you are never going to leave the city. Yeah. Whether you're in the government side of things or the, the private side of things. Um, but I don't know, Alex, uh, my fiance, she was, um, you know, on Capitol Hill. She loved it. She got out. She worked for a, a hospital back there yeah um and after uh, she got out she started after she left capitol hill yeah she started working for the hospital and she was like an admin she was working she worked part of she was part of their i think her vp of support services or something like that and so i think and she would help them with i think the I keep saying like kind of operations because I'm kind of operations of the hospital yeah non-clinical side of the hospital right. business and, and operations not part of the um you know government affairs team or yeah. whatever political strategy or whatever i mean each yeah. independent which is interesting whatever it is interesting own. yeah like 
I mean, I, I think most of the people that are going to listen to this podcast are people in Boise. So it's interesting to, to hear that St. Alphonsus and St. Luke's have lobbyists yeah. that go down and hang out with the politicians to try to sway things in their favor for the hospitals. Yeah. And they also, there's, so there's part of the, there's also associations, right. That represent hospitals. Just like I, there's associations that represent other entities like, yep. like banks yep. and, you know, commerce within the area and stuff like that. They also, um, represent hospitals as a whole. So you do have your independent government affairs folks, and then you also have, um, association folks that still, uh, quote unquote lobby yeah. on your behalf. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because I never, I never even thought I've worked at St. Alphonsus for six and a half years. And only recently I came to the realization that they have somebody that works Mm-hmm. I mean, probably downtown all the time. They're probably probably there most of their time meeting with the yeah. local, state, and uh, county politicians. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's interesting for sure. Um, you know, it's 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 interesting seeing it back in D.C. Uh, from a national and a global perspective, and yeah. then seeing it here in Boise. Uh, wherever you go, it's such a small community. I mean, is it is it like less? Like if you were to get into local politics here, which I know you kind of did, and then you went to the national stage, and then you came back to Boise to work uh-huh. in the private sector. But do you think it's it, it's like less intimidating to work for local politics or like state politics than it is to work nationally? Um, you know, I would say it's, it's different. Everyone's going to have a different, their own kind of unique experience, whether they're you know, that's at the state level, the local level, the state level, or the national level. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's different in the fact that, um, you know, at the national level, you have Republicans versus Democrats, basically, right? Yeah. And uh, at the state level, you have Republicans versus Republicans. Oh, so, yeah, that's weird. You know, that's it's, interesting. it's very interesting because it's... Um, like, they're not a real Republican because yeah, they have this little these, liberal like, point of view. Crazy people, whether you view them as crazy or not. Um, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, of course, but, um, you know, it's, it's just interesting. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, working in DC, it's, it's completely different because I was able to work during the Obama administration and then also during the Trump administration. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a sad state of affairs back there right now because you can work on legislation that helps everybody that's very inclusive yep. whether it be from an education standpoint healthcare standpoint uh, business friendly standpoint uh, whatever yeah but just because of the name or the label that's on that bill or that piece of legislation or that whatever it is then you have this animosity towards it as opposed so, to so reading if- the bill and saying you know because you have you have experiences where people um, you know you work on this this bill with, you know, uh, a Democrat or a Republican, whichever side you're on. Yeah. And, um, you know, you both agree to it, but because it's written by somebody else, they're automatically out. That that's, that's the most ridiculous thing I think about politics, uh, at the national level is if someone sponsors a bill that seems like nonpartisan, and it should help everyone, which <laughs> at this point, it only seems like f- more funding to wars. So, uh, so, but, but if you're, if you're a Democrat and you put in like a new bill, that's going to like help 
everyone, no matter what, the Republicans are probably going to vote against it just because a Democrat put it in. Right. And, and what's unique about, um, and everyone's all about like the, the one-liners that they can go and blast out on Twitter or get in front of a Fox News or CNN camera and, yeah. and talk about. Like, oh, AOC wants to spend $6 trillion on sure, but, uh, cleaning up the ocean. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, at the same time, you've got these massive omnibus bills, right, that are passed every single year, whether it's a defense bill, a farm bill, um, you know, and then everybody likes to go and stand on the senator house floor and say, Spencer Gerke voted against uh, protecting our children at school. Yeah, right? which it's just a soundbite. It's a soundbite for sure, because what happens is you've got like um, a bill that's passed every single year in Congress or it's statutorily required to be passed every single year is the NDA or the National Defense Authorization Act, which essentially in theory, everyone loves funds. which every single person on yeah. either side of the aisle loves that bill. Right. <laughs> but a lot of people, um, you know, it gets, it gets deeper than that because, uh, what happens is, um, you're limited on floor time, right? Because everyone's gone for reset. You only have a certain amount of time to well, get things through. Even when you get on the floor, aren't sometimes a lot of people not even there. Right. You're speaking to a camera is what you're doing. Well, and you're, yeah. And there's only like maybe other 10 other senators in there. Oh, if that, that is so ridiculous. Yeah. That is the fact that they are there to represent us and they're not listening to every single proposal that goes through that should piss people off. Well, it goes through a committee, right? It's got its own process mm -hmm. uh, before it gets to the floor. Yeah. And um, what happens is back to uh, trying to everyone to get time to get their stuff through is you start using these massive omnibus bills that are passed every single year or every other year. And they start you putting start stuff putting in putting those. stuff in them because oh you gosh. can't, your, your bill's not going to be heard. Yeah. Basically if, if you don't attach it to something else. Right. Yeah. And so that's what happens when you see these uh, politicians and, and media folks standing up saying Spencer Gerke opposes protecting kids. It's because this, which is not true, which <laughs> sorry, uh, <laughs> which is this education bill right? That is supposed to be about um, funding schools. It's supposed to be about increasing teacher pay. It's supposed to be about all this other stuff. But yet now you're sticking in amendments that are totally non-germane to the original intent of the bill. Yeah. And because of that, because, because I'm doing that, you're going to end up voting no on the bill, right? But then they can say, then oh, they he say, voted against. I can turn around and say, Spencer voted no on the education bill. That's and so it's ridiculous. All about, it's all about campaigning. It's all about getting, like I said, getting in front of the media. It happens every single day, and it's been going on. And so that's why it's so misleading and frustrating when you hear um, you know, whether or not your congressional delegation uh, voted yes or no on a bill. Yeah. Because 110% of that is not not accurate right yeah they 90 percent of the time they agree with the original intent of the bill i'm assuming going yeah. on a limb i'm not speaking on anyone's behalf and then there's 10 percent they try to sneak in it's it's well no i would say it's probably on a lot of that stuff only 20 percent of the the original bill is or the bill is actually germane to what it's oh, intended to do wow. and um, so everyone sticks in their little pet projects like yeah. uh you know in both parties I, I'm not being partisan here. Both parties are are, are guilty, guilty, of, yeah. guilty of sin of it. Um, but what happens is like during issues that's going on right now, um, 
you know, you have the Democrat Party. Well, the well, the only reason why I say the Democrat Party is because in the Senate, the House obviously is the majority and they dictate the calendar and the floor schedule and all that stuff. Yep, yep. And what goes through, what's going to be heard and what's not going to be heard. And so uh, you have the Democrats that then start pushing their pet projects in because they don't couldn't otherwise get it through the finish line. Yeah. Right. And so you have to start being creative on how you get things passed and through. And so that's why, because you know, people are going to be mm-hmm. vehemently against yeah. your bills, no matter what. Sure. There's that aspect to it. And there's just a matter of logistical. You're not going to have the time oh, from gotcha. a logistics standpoint. Gotcha. And so it's very interesting. You don't have that dynamic here at the state level. Um, but, you know, that's something that uh, I think is is unique and something that you have to uh, be able to be strategic about. Right. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. Not all the stuff that is thrown in that's non-germane to that bill is controversial. They yeah. have stuff that, um, you know, both parties agree with. But it's also I mean, those that those the five percent of those issues are the issues that you hear in the news every single day, right? Yeah, it's yeah. those big issues, those big moral difference issues that they try and just throw into these massive bills yeah. because then they can go home to their constituents and say, hey, look, I tried to push it through, but, you know, Senator House member X, Y, and Z voted against funding kids. You yeah. know, how terrible is that? And in reality, that's not the case. So, so what I find, this is pretty funny that we've, I feel like we've managed to talk about this without, stating a point of view or, or getting like political on our personal behalf, um, which I think is pretty good. And that's kind of how I want this podcast to go when we talk about stuff. And I think that that's pretty cool that we were able to do that and you were able to explain it without, you know, like picking a side one way or the other. But I I think a recent example of this, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know how much you're plugged in now that you're like not there, but with the, um, it was not the PPP, but like the new, the, um, the CARES Act. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah the like stimulus. the CARES Act. They tried to put in some stuff about um, climate change into mm-hmm. the CARES Act. Yeah. And people were kind of like, why Why does that have to go in this bill? Because sure. this is just about getting money, like direct payments. To- yeah. So this is a great example of, of this exact thing, right? Yeah. Like, um, the whole point of the CARES Act and the PPP program was to push money out to small businesses as fast as possible. Yeah. Um, and so that's how Congress was able to, that's why it was a, you know, a, what was it? A, a trillion dollar bill or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the PPP portion of it was, I think, 300. The first wave was 350 billion. Then the second wave was another 320 billion, I think. And that's exactly, that's why the uh, second round of funding took so long right because you had a gap in there and and it's because you know um and again it's not it's just it's what happened um you know you had members that were trying to um include increasing the minimum wage and increasing um you know teacher pay and whether you agree or disagree with those issues you know that's a whole separate it doesn't mean you're opposed to them but they were trying to take those partisan issues take advantage of the situation and include those and that's why there's a struggle between it and it's not like uh you know and that's and, and that's the nature of what goes on back there today and that's why there's so much infighting is because um you try and do good whether again i i'm not I'm, I'm not being, um, uh, biased one way or another. It's just, it's my personal experience. Yeah. Um, you know, 
both parties have great ideas on different issues. Yep. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and I support, even though I work for a Republican member, I support some initiatives that were brought forth by the Democrats that didn't get through because they were blocked by the Republicans. And, yeah. um, you know, that's just the nature when it comes to these highly politicized issues, yeah. right? Is one party will take advantage, try and take advantage of the situation by putting some of those issues in and it just grinds it grinds everything to a halt. Yeah. And then the media gets on and says, well, the Republican controlled Senate isn't doing X, Y, and Z. And it's, there's a lot more to this behind the scenes. Yeah, you can't going explain on it in one sense. Yeah. And, and the media doesn't bother to do it or take it, try to explain it to their viewers. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess that's kind of the frustrating part. And, um, which is like another thing that, I mean, I know we took like American history and government class and we kind of got a 500 or, or a uh, 30,000 foot view of what goes on kind of in the House and the Senate, but they never really tell you what day-to-day operations are like or what right. it's actually like there. Right. It's like, this is what it says in the Constitution. Right. This is who runs what the vice president is in charge of the Senate. It's just right. stuff like that. It's right. not like... And, and people like to throw around the Constitution, whether, again, from either both sides of the party... Uh, or both sides of the aisle that, you know, uh, Spencer is uh, blatantly ignoring what the Constitution says. And, you know, it's everyone's everyone's own kind of personalized version of the Constitution. I'm not an attorney, but, you know, it's it's super interesting. I think what's cool about the Constitution is they intentionally left things somewhat vague to allow... The government discretion, yeah, discretion to interpret as what, times it, what evolve. it means. Yep, yeah, as yeah, time evolves. Totally, uh, and and I I wholeheartedly agree. But the thing that you get into these days is whose discretion is the correct. Yeah, you know, kind well, of. Well, there, there's and and I think we should move on from this topic. But <laughs> um, the whole issue, if people aren't plugged into the issue of what's going on with social media right now, it's it's very interesting because it it's a good thought experiment. If somebody provides a platform where most people can get their information from, but it's a private company, should you censor things on that platform? It's it's, and I'm not saying I believe one way or the other sure. because obviously, like if kids have access to a platform, you probably don't want them seeing naked pictures or <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but when it's I don't know. It's just, it's, it's an interesting thought experiment to do with yourself. And, and if you've been watching too much CNN or too much Fox news, you probably have a predisposed um, thought about what it should be. But I think you should not pay attention to either of those and try to figure it out for yourself. Like, like do the thought experiment for yourself. I think that's, what's so unique about, you know, the, the whole, quote unquote, coming of age type thing, right? Is because you get to form your own opinions on whether or not your parents think one way or your your siblings or your best friends think another. Yeah, I think that's what's unique is that, you know, you get to create those own opinions on yourself. And it's too bad because to your point, whether it's CNN, Fox, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, yeah. whatever device or outlet that you go to, it tries to, to um, it doesn't try to inform you. It tries to, um, you know, kind of, relay their opinions onto you to yeah. help skew your opinions on things. And, and it's really too bad. And, and, uh, which could you know. be interpreted. They're a private company. They have the right, they have their sure. own first amendment, right? They can sure. run their private company however they want. But then it's like, at, 
there's they get to a point where they're so big and so many people pay attention to them should they stop policing things that they don't agree with which i don't i don't know what my opinion is on that that's sure. like a very interesting question i think but um Okay, so moving on from politics and history, Sorry. which I knew we were going to talk about. <laughs> it's just so interesting. It's fun. It is fun. Especially the whole uh, conversation about um, Rasputin and stuff. I think that stuff's so oh, awesome. Stuff like that is so bizarre to me. Right. Okay, so, so I'm starting a YouTube channel, okay. and I'm learning how to make videos and do voiceovers. Like I bought some audio equipment, and um, I bought a computer, and um, I'm using Adobe... I think it's called Premiere and then After Effects. Yeah. And you can like learn how to, you know, put together a YouTube video. But I've been doing research on why the borders of the Balkans are the way they are. Really? Yeah. Oh, it's that's interesting. so interesting. So, um, but I want to, I, I do want to move on, but like people need to look into like sure. the history of the world. It's yeah. so cool. When yeah. You, like you are the age that some people were when they were running countries. Mm -hmm. And it's like, could I, could I run a country? Could I run the Roman Empire as a 29-year-old? So to that to that point, it was super interesting because Alex and I were in um, northern France last year. Uh -huh. and Oh, you guys went to Normandy and mm -hmm, stuff? And in Paris, spent a few days in Paris. And that was kind of our thing, especially living back in D.C. Because it was actually cheaper, especially over like Thanksgiving, to fly from uh, D.C. or Dulles to Paris or, or London or Dublin, wherever than from D.C. to Boise. Okay. And so, like, over Thanksgiving, we would always just go to Europe. Yeah. And um, we did the whole, uh, which Normandy, the, what is it, the... Oh, D-Day. D-Day anniversary was yesterday. What is it, like... June 6, 1944. No, 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 I know the date, but what's yeah. the year? 1944. No, 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 How many, what's the anniversary year? Oh, my gosh. I don't... Like, 76. 80... Anyway, I feel like an idiot. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, anyway. Wait, hang on. No, we have to do this math because people are going to think we're idiots. 44. So, so 44 plus 60 is 2004. Yeah. It's, yeah, 70, uh, 76. 76. Yeah. 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 So I was right. Yeah. You're smart, dude. Thank you. You didn't uh, even take calculus in college either. No, Debbie did. <laughs> Debbie did. Um, anyway, it was super interesting because we did. Have you been to Normandy? No, no. I'm, so, it's on my huge, it's on top of my list of places to another, go. Another thing to do is uh, the drive from Paris to the western part in the western coast of, of France is just, oh my God, it's gorgeous. Yeah. And another area we wanted to go, but we didn't have time was up into Dunkirk. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but long story short, we were, uh, we're on Omaha beach and then we did the Point du Hoc tour, which oh, was yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. It was so amazing. So Point du Hoc is a, is it a church or is nope, it like a nope, little it's city? A, it's a, nope. It's a little kind of just a little tiny, tiny peninsula. That's probably the size of three of your houses. But, but and isn't there a building on it too though? No, no. It was just a, it was a, it was like a, a small little, uh, peninsula that the, I think the uh, army rangers, not I think, the army rangers scaled those cliffs. Oh, oh, during... oh. I'm thinking of a different place. Okay. Yeah, Point oh, du Hoc. Oh, no, no, no. It's a, Point du Hoc was on Normandy Beach. Mont Saint-Michel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mont yeah. Saint-Michel. Which we can talk to because we were there as well. We yeah. visited that. Anyway, it's where the rangers during World War II on D-Day scaled those cliffs. So if you've seen, if whoever's listening, if you've seen Saving Private Ryan, all of it wasn't just beaches like that. No. Like it wasn't like, oh, you land and you just walk a up the A majority of it was. But you also have the paratroopers, which was the Band of Brothers. 180th. 101st. Or 101st. Yep. Yeah. And then you have, I think it's the 2nd Ranger Battalion or whatever, scaled um, 
So, so when they, their landing crafts went up to the beach and they climbed up cliffs. It's about of, six stories on that's so ladders that are more narrow than your entire body. And what they did, what the, the whole goal of their uh, scaling those cliffs was there was a, um, a German uh, battery uh, artillery or, or whatever. I don't, I don't know. Like an artillery group or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. That was capable of shooting and uh, had the range of all the destroyers oh, that, that were... was sitting in the channel bombarding the beach so that the, um, so that the uh, guys landing on Omaha and all those other beaches, Utah and, yeah. and uh, that so that they could it was essentially suppressing fire from the Germans that were coming down on top of them. Yeah. Anyway, this this are these are uh, the batteries or artillery I, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, they um, they had the range to hit those destroyers. Uh, out so the there Rangers the were going up to so disable the, them, or, mm-hmm. yeah. and it was critical that they destroy these. Otherwise, uh, the invasion was all for naught, basically. Yeah. And uh, what they did was they fought their way up six stories worth about the height of the cliffs were six stories high yeah and they fought their way up and then um over a couple hours i don't know how long it lasted but once they got up there the uh the guns the german artillery was was uh was gone they had moved it oh and so then it was kind of like an aw shit moment yeah and they had to go look for it and because it wasn't because they were using i think at the time they were using like french intelligence that the French had told them, Hey, this is where those batteries are. Mm-hmm. And, um, they're like, okay, that's how they, that's how they found it. Or that's how they knew that point to Hawk was the place that they were going to go. Yeah. And, uh, what they did was they kind of just randomly stumbled across this, uh, the, the artillery. Am I saying that right? Artillery. Artillery. <laughs> artillery. I'm sorry. Artillery. <laughs> uh, don't, yeah. Anyway, um, they just randomly stumbled across it and there were no Nazis within the area because what they had, they pulled them, essentially, I think they kind of pulled them back into the bushes. Yeah. And uh, the Nazis obviously didn't think that the Americans were going to find them. And yeah. so nobody was manning them or guarding them. And, but what they were doing... Well, they didn't even know, they didn't even know that, uh, I say we, but the Allies were coming at that particular spot on the coast because they thought they were going to come over like the Strait of Dover, right? Because that's like the most narrow part of the channel. Yeah. And the Germans knew that an attack was coming from somewhere. Yeah. So it's kind of like hard to be, pre- I mean, if you think from the Nazi perspective, it's hard to be prepared. Like, I mean, those guys just show up to work every sympathizer, day. Sympathizer, Spencer? I'm not a sympathizer. I'm just saying, if you go to work every day and it's a year and you're like, oh my God, the allies are going to attack at some point. You probably get lackadaisical. Sure. Yeah. And, and but but what was interesting is is they were all pointed towards Utah Beach. Oh. And um, anyway, long story short, they were able to to destroy all of them. And so, so it was almost it was, it was the, a critical uh, point to the invasion um, because if the Ranger Battalion wasn't uh, able to accomplish that mission. Um, then there was some serious fear that they were basically they just sitting the, ducks. Sink the destroyers. Yep. So is the reason that Omaha Beach is the one that we've all heard of? Like, I think if you talk to anyone, it's like Normandy, Omaha Beach. Gold Beach or something. I don't know. But Utah but is, o- is Omaha famous because that's the point where the beachhead was kind of established? So I think it's famous just, you know, I think there's this, this, I, this, People forget that it wasn't just the Americans that were invading. It was all of the allies. It was all of the allies. The Canadians were there. The British were there. The Americans were there. 
And I think it's, and I don't know if it's common, uh, outside of the United States, like if Omaha beach is this like big, but that's where the Americans attacked. That's the, or, Americans, or the Americans, the Americans landed at Omaha and Utah. Beach. Okay. Yep. So that, and that, those are the ones we've all heard of. Yep. So maybe the Canadians have heard of the different beaches Yeah, and, and they all have their own beaches where they landed. And, um, anyway, they, they well, what were they named after? I'm just joking. <laughs> but I don't know. Omaha, Utah. <laughs> oh, I thought you were like, where'd they get the name? Oh, no. But like oh. if Gold Beach or whatever, that's probably some province or not province, but like, yeah. I don't know, famous town in Canada or something. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to make a joke. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so like the, the the cemetery, which is like Arlington Cemetery, but yeah. I think that, that was over Omaha Beach. And you never realize how massive the beach is until you actually step foot on the beach. Oh, yeah. And it's just so wide. And the you're so exposed. You're so exposed. They, like, they had to cover so much ground um, to get cover. And, you know, it was, um, I, I read a thing yesterday, actually, where it says within the first 15 minutes, um, there was an 85% mortality rate Jesus. in each boat, like you, not you boat. That's a, uh, Nazi. It was submarine. like a landing, craft a landing or... craft. There were like 30 infantry or soldier soldiers in each boat. Yeah. And on average within the first 15 minutes, only two out of the 30 had survived. Whoa. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. It's nuts. And you just, again, until you actually walk on the beach, you don't realize just how massive and exposed you are. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, another Utah beach, I would encourage anybody who's making the trek over there. They have this phenomenal museum over there. Yeah. That's probably like, I don't know, 2000 square feet, but you can spend easily four hours in it because, uh, it's all this donated, um, you know, all these donated artifacts from both the, uh, from German families and from American and British families. Yeah. And it just talks about the preparation. It talks about everything that went into it. And it's, yeah, I don't know. It's it's so fascinating and um, it's it's very cool. Yeah. Um, okay, so I I want to move on from history a little bit. I just want to ask you a couple uh, kind of stupid, lighthearted questions. Sure. Um, what's your favorite movie? <laughs> is it is it Top Gun? No, it's Forrest Gump. Oh, it's Forrest Gump. Oh, for sure. Okay, Forrest Gump's an awesome movie. Yeah. Do you know who directed Forrest Gump? Is it Tom Hanks? Robert Zemeckis. Oh, really? And he directed. I he directed like. Um, Back to the Future. Did you know that uh, John Travolta turned down the Forrest Gump role? No way. Yeah. That's so... I can't imagine him Yeah, being... I can't imagine him in it either. Yeah. Oh, okay. So another thing, like people who turn down famous roles and like, I'm, I'm sure John Travolta probably regretted doing that. Oh, totally. Um, Will Smith was supposed to be Neo in The Matrix. Oh, I had heard about that. Yeah. yeah Isn't yeah. that kind of bizarre? That's nice. I don't know. I just can't think... I can't imagine him in that role. I guess like until, I don't know, you see it, but yeah. you're so used to. What's your favorite movie? Uh, I have a lot of favorite movies. I love Star Wars, uh, Empire Strikes Back. That's like, that's definitely up there. Indiana Jones is up there. Pulp Fiction. Mm. Speaking of uh, John Travolta. Yeah, speaking of John Travolta. Um, it's so funny. Debbie and I love Pulp Fiction. And there's a famous scene. I mean, I feel like every scene from Pulp Fiction is famous. You've seen Pulp Fiction? Yeah when they're dancing um, in the diner and they do the, it's like Jackrabbit Slim's uh, John Travolta's taking out his boss's wife 
um, just to entertain her for the night. And it's not like they're on a date or anything, but she tells him, Hey, I want to go win the dance competition. So he has to dance with her and they do like a very specific, like kind of funny. I don't even know how to explain it. My mom would get mad at me that I don't know the style of dance that they're dancing. (laughs) But Debbie and I were playing this game last night with a couple friends where you put your phone on your forehead. Oh yeah. yeah. And I think it's called heads up and it tells you a movie and you have to try to get yep. them to guess it. Yep. And I had it on my forehead and Debbie just started doing that little dance. You were like Pulp Fiction. I was like Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah. It's just so funny how connected we yeah, were. Funny. Yeah. So true or false, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Oh, I think, yeah. Yes, totally. Really? Do you think so? I think so, but I can see the argument why it's not. Yeah, I can see the argument why it's not I mean, not the too. only reason why it is is because it's Christmas Eve, right? Yeah. I love all those like more simplistic action movies like Die Hard and... Indiana Jones. I love, love those kind of movies. Yeah. Yeah. So have you, did you see anything in the theaters before uh, all this happened? Like the coronavirus stuff happened? Yeah. um, Bad Boys. Oh my God. We went and saw Bad Boys 3. Okay. So Matt Dickinson, a good friend of ours, (laughs) is obsessed with Bad Boys 2. And it's probably his favorite movie. I bet it is. And it's a very quotable movie. But when Bad Boys 3 got announced... I think Zach texted everyone and said, are we going to the midnight premiere? <laughs> and within 30 seconds, Matt said, yes. Yep. Of course we are. <laughs> so we went and saw it at, I don't know, the village of Meridian. Yeah. It was, it was a good time. That was, was pretty fun. funny. Uh, so, um, speaking of travel. Yes. You guys are going to Tokyo. Yes. We bought tickets for Tokyo in the spring, in That's April. Cool. Yep. We were, so our big trip this year was supposed to be Argentina and Uruguay. Um, and then we we're going to go down to Patagonia and see some glaciers. Um, but we were flying non-rev because my uncle flies for American Airlines. And this was the first time we were ever going to try doing that. So luckily, we hadn't bought tickets yet. Um, but we bought we bought tickets for Tokyo because on Scott's cheap flights, round trip to Tokyo was like 700 bucks a person from Boise, which rarely does Scott's cheap flights have uh, Boise as the hub. Usually, it's like Salt Lake or Seattle. So... Sounds fun. Yeah. Man. And you've been to Tokyo, right? I have not. I haven't been to Japan at all. Oh, yeah. I thought for some reason I thought you had. Nope. But you've I... been to China and Southeast Asia? Mm-hmm. I've been to China, Taiwan, Cambodia, Thailand, and Vietnam. And you, I think I asked you before, you think Vietnam was your favorite place? Oh, or, yeah. It yeah. was super fun. Um, I was just in South Vietnam or uh, Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon, whatever people want to call it these yeah. days. Um, it's weird because the name of the city obviously is Ho Chi Minh City, uh-huh. but the airport code is Saigon. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I and why. I don't know. And uh, anyway, it was super fun. The people are amazing over there. It's the food is phenomenal. The beaches, um, the history. It was, it's, you, you quickly forget that it's still a communist country until you see the propaganda on the buildings oh. and on the billboards and stuff like do they, that. Do they have like Eastern Bloc style housing too? No, I think it's it's pretty pretty common. I thought I didn't notice a difference between, you know, Bangkok and and the housing between Bangkok and and Ho Chi Minh City, gotcha. and stuff like that. But went over there and saw the tunnels, um, you know, from what, the what Vietnam. The, oh no way! That where the Viet Cong, uh, where they kind of, um, I don't know. Well, they had like they had all these tunnels set up like yeah. in the jungles and stuff, and then the Americans when we were fighting Vietnam had tunnel rats yeah that they would what no way being but but then okay so they had these tunnels set up where they would have i don't know 
communications hubs and it stuff. Was, it was and, a lot more sophisticated than that. They had hospitals set up under, uh, oh, under there, wow. like to your point, communication centers. Like it was a network and a place where they could probably go for hunker down for but Americans, a couple weeks. Americans, they'd find like a small American guy and they'd strip him down and yeah. give him a pistol and a flashlight yes. and say like, can you just go down there and kind of see what's in this? No way. And then they'd set booby traps too. And yeah. so Americans would fall onto spikes and stuff in those tunnel entrances. And it was pretty brutal because it wasn't meant to kill. Uh, I mean, like I, just maim, just maim them. And then oh. like they would get infected, right? Because you're in the jungle and Jesus. there's all this bacteria and all this other stuff. And so it was, it was pretty gruesome and, and, painful like they definitely took advantage of their home turf oh for sure (laughs) and i think that's how they were obviously that's why they were so effective yeah and i'm personally very claustrophobic so there's there's no way you you can can, get me to crawl in a time you can go down into one and some of them are are big enough where you can actually stand Uh and then you actually it's kind of like you make your way through the tunnel and then there's sections where your army crawling on your belly and the thing with with that with for me is once i get to a point that would be hard for me to like back up. Oh, I just yeah. get super close. Yeah, you're you like I have can't. to go forward. Yes, or, yeah. I can't do that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm a big dude, and I hate uh, being in tiny spaces. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. But um, uh, but yeah, Asia's Asia's a fun area to go to. The food and the people are awesome. Um, yeah, Thailand is on our list. Um, Vietnam for sure. Um, I would love to go to South Korea. Yeah, um, just because it's kind of like a different. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't. I'm sure people would be super offended if I said this, but it's not like Southeastern Asia. It's more like Tokyo where there's a lot of people and it's a big city like Seoul, South Korea. They, um, uh, Bangkok's massive. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one place I would be happy never, never going to. And and it's not a bad thing. It's just my personal preference is Beijing. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm just not a big, it's, it's, I don't don't know. I just didn't have a, a positive experience when I went over there and, um, I give, give me one sec. I'm gonna cut this out, but I have to go to the restroom real quick. Sorry. Nothing. Okay, and we're back. So, uh, one place you said you'd never want to go again was Beijing. Correct. Yeah. So what? What about Beijing? Did you not like? Um, it wasn't so much. Uh, it wasn't. I went there for work, uh-huh. and um, don't get me wrong. We went to the Great Wall, which was fantastic, and it was so cool because we hit it on a clear day. Yeah. And we hiked all the way to the top, and you could see. I mean, it's it, it was a gorgeous view, and and uh, it's a massive city, and I don't know. I just didn't have a positive experience when I was there. Yeah. Um, I can't think of what I would do uh, other than the the you know Tiananmen Square and stuff like that of of what I would go do if I was a visitor there like if you weren't part of yeah don't get me wrong I'm sure that there was a lot there's a lot of stuff to do there and there is and you can you can stay there for a couple days and I'm sure people love it and I know people that that go back you know as much as they can so you so you go to Tiananmen Square but obviously there's not like a memorial or anything right because they kind of like you're not allowed to talk about it what do you mean? Like what happened in the, in the 90s? Or yeah, whatever? in Tiananmen Square. So it's interesting because this is another one of those staff deals that I was telling you about earlier. Yeah. And um, we they put you up at like this in, insanely like five-star hotel. And we were a block away from Tiananmen Square. And you know that p- 
picture or that photo that is just everywhere of that guy standing in front of the tank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that photo was actually taken at the same hotel we were staying at. Oh, no way. Yeah. So you could look out and see the same spot. Mm-hmm. Whoa, cool. Yeah, it was, it was pretty neat. Um, again, from a historical standpoint, it was, it was a great experience. And there's a lot, I think there's a lot to do, but so, it's just. So uh, once again, just to kind of give some background, if people don't know what happened at Tiananmen Square, um, there was a huge anti-government um, protest, like I protest guess, rally or whatever. And Tiananmen Square is huge, right? That's it what is. I've heard. It's it ginormous. Is. So there were a ton of people in there. China called in the military to take mm-hmm. take care of the protesters, and they don't even have an official number for how many people were killed, right? Yeah. Like there's an estimate, and it's thousands. In Tiananmen Square is that is is the area. It's kind of like the the National Mall equivalent to. Uh, DC. Right? Oh, okay. And um, it's where the the ubiquitous photo of uh, Mao Zedong was is there. You know, with this photo on the building. Oh, the big picture. That's yeah, yeah. kind of that's the area we're talking about. Yeah. And um, anyway, yeah. To your point, there's really no real record of of the the effects of. There's that, some. That. There's some photos I've seen photos online of. I mean, they're fairly gruesome pictures of what happened to some of the protesters, but. I don't know how those pictures even survived. It must have been somebody yeah. hid their camera roll or something. So, and that was another thing I didn't like about my trip is that um, we, everything is censored, right? Yeah. Because it's a no shit communist country where they like to control uh, what's available to the public. Yeah. And so Google. State, state owned. State uh, owned everything, basically. Like electronics companies yeah. too. Like your right. phone is state owned. Right. And, and um, and so I've had two experiences with this because I was just in Shanghai uh, last uh, in 2019. Uh-huh. And um, when I was in Beijing, it was everything you can't access anything unless you kind of uh, have your own I forget VPN or whatever. Oh yeah, know, yeah. Where you can people who live in China do get their own VPN, so the so, Chinese government can't spy on them. And it's not like the government will come bust down your door if you're just you know, posting things on social media and stuff like that. Yeah. Obviously, if you are uh, very anti-government, then that's an issue for them and, yep. and they're going to take care of it. But, um, you know, we had, everything was blocked. Like, um, I couldn't access my email or I, I could, I could access my email, but um, it was very challenging. And then we didn't, it was like I left my personal phone because we all had our black trust trusty blackberries. Yeah, and um, you know, it was something. It was it was just difficult. It made things very different. Um, we were in the hotel uh, at Tiananmen Square, the the right along there. Yeah, and um, there was a running joke before of count how many cameras are in your room. Oh gosh. And so that was kind of one of the things that I kind of was like, okay, whatever. But I was like, all right, I'll look. And you take a shower and the whole mirror will, f- will fog yep. just like any shower, right? Yeah. Or any mirror in a bathroom when you take a shower. But there was a um, small little square in the bottom left-hand corner that wouldn't. And you put your hand up against the mirror and it's just completely, it's like burning hot. That and is it's like so, what a one-way mirror or whatever yeah. where you have a camera on the other side and it's you know and then they have a uh there's another area where there's like the toilet and the the bat the tub basically uh-huh. and then they have this massive mirror that um 
kind of folded down like this off the wall. Like it was like angled? Kinda? It was angled, yeah. And like you could see a camera back there. And then you look up in the shower in the ventilation system where you turn the fan on to get all the fog out and you could see a red flashing light in there. What then, the hell? So I think we counted anywhere from like five to seven cameras in each. Oh my God. It was nuts. And, um, you know, it just, we had again on these trips you go and you visit like we visited the minister of foreign affairs or whatever and, yeah. and the commerce and i don't know what the what they're called anymore over there i forgot but anyway right when we landed they essentially we had them pick us up at the airport and we had a guy that was with us every single time uh-huh. and he was part of their ministry of foreign affairs or whatever and he basically was there to kind of not only chaperone us but also kind of steer conversations so that they stay on topic. Did he, did he ever like kind of, was he more helpful or was he more like a authoritarian? Like if you started to say, well, why, why did Mao do this? And would he say like, you shouldn't ask that kind of question or no, no, he wasn't. It wasn't, it was, I, I wouldn't say it's a health. It was a healthy dialogue back and forth because I certainly didn't want to challenge them yeah. on, you know, the history of China. Cause I didn't know, I don't, I knew just enough to make me dangerous and bad. <laughs> and, you know, obviously these guys grew up and, and they're incredibly smart and they know, uh, you know, they're very pro China and they know exactly what happened in their mind and what the, what they were educated with. And, um, you know, and so I, I think it was, well, it was more of a conversation like, well, did you do this or that or whatever? And he'd be, they'd be like, well, you have to remember that, you know, when the Western culture suppressed us on whatever, oh. you know, it was, you know, it was kind of a dialogue like that. And then depending upon how much you wanted to push them, we weren't over there to start arguments. I mean, yeah, we yeah, were, yeah. you know, but I was just, just low I, level staff. So it wasn't, it wasn't like as crazy as... When you're in North Korea, if you ask no. the wrong question, oh, God, they're like, no. you cannot do that. No, no, no. Yeah. And and I mean, there are privately, like there were times where they would be like, hey, that's probably not like, let's steer clear of that and yeah. stuff like that. But, um, you know, they were there to, I think it wasn't, they knew what they were getting with us, yeah. right? Like they knew that we were going to ask questions, right? Yeah. Like, it was, he was there more to keep the agency folks online. Gotcha, line. gotcha, gotcha. Uh, on on what they were saying, on their responses and their feedback back to us on some of the questions, because you got to remember the big issue that we were dealing with when we were over there, and especially when we were in Taiwan, was the South China Sea. Oh, which um, is still an issue. They haven't yeah, figured that out yet. Yeah, but it was it was it was pretty heightened at that point in time, and yeah. um, you know it uh, it was just I mean it was when we were another example when we were in the airport like. The, the nice thing or the benefits of going on these, these things is you don't, when you go through customs, you've got your own like um, diplomat line that you go through oh, kind yeah. of thing. You don't have to go and wait in line and do all this other stuff. And so they know who you are. They know, you know, they don't know who you are, but they know that, you know, what trip you're, you're with part the of. United States or yeah, whatever. Yeah, you're with the yeah. U.S. government on this trip or whatever. Yeah. And um, like they just harass you because they can, right? Like I, not, not verbally or... Um, what my experience was is going through security, like they have you take out your phone, your uh, laptop and your headphones or yeah. um, stuff like that. And I took all that stuff out and um, I put it through and then they pulled me aside and oh. they start questioning it. And 
Then they start digging through it's my like, bag. It's like a spin on what the TSA does to yeah, certain people in the right, US. Right, <laughs> right, right. And then they literally took everything out of my bag and just dumped it oh my into a bin and yeah. then sent it through. And um, and then just said, okay, bye. And then they like made me put everything back oh in. Oh my gosh. And, and it, it sounds That's like so annoying. first world problems or whatever. But like I had a lot of shit in there and it was it was super annoying. And, well, you and probably was, packed it a certain way. And, yeah. yeah. And, and I knew that if they were looking for something, then um, they would have obviously been a little more detailed in what they what they did. With like your phone or something. Yeah. Or... And they were, and I had like one of those little VPN numbers that updates every 30 seconds oh, to get yeah. on the secured server yeah so it's like they would have been like hey what's this because yeah. i was an idiot and i didn't take it out of my bag before i left yeah and um so stuff like that if they were actually looking for stuff then i knew that they probably would have questioned me and said hey what is this well there, there's no way that the chinese government doesn't know that people use vpns over there oh absolutely no they, they totally they do. Know. yeah and again i don't think it's a big deal unless it's it's a burr under their saddle. Or right? they think like, they have like, you have nefarious intent or sure. yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're spying on them. <laughs> right. Right. And so I don't know. I just didn't think that it was, it, it, it was very, everything that our experience, everything that we did was, I, part of me just didn't get the feeling like, Hey, this is real life. Like yeah. I was in Shanghai over, uh, do you think they were putting on a front kind of, or I don't know. I think that everyone's going to have their own opinions on things. Um, but like, this is a perfect example. We went to Bao Steel, which is this massive steel company that's owned by the government, basically. Yeah. Uh, you can argue that it's not, but it is. Let's not <laughs> fool ourselves. Yeah. And um, it's kind of, uh, it's outside of Shanghai. And like, it's just huge. They supply like 95% of the steel in China or whatever. Yeah. And it's just this massive steel plant. And when we went there... Um, it's like a, a, a facility that's like 25 square miles long. Like it's just the campus is that big. And when we were there, we saw maybe 50 employees. Oh, wow. And it's like, where, where is everybody? Where is everybody? And like maybe they had health problems or something or they didn't, they wanted to show you the strongest workers and or they something. Wanted or... To, yeah. And, and maybe they wanted to show us how, quotes, automated their systems were when oh, really they weren't. Yeah. Because um, nothing was up and running. Right, like they turned on a, 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 a machine to that we could watch, kind oh. of make these. Basically, they were they were basically so it wasn't I-beams. it wasn't real operations when yeah. you were there. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, and I mean, it's not like we were. They drove us in one area and then took us out that exact same way. Like we drove around, and it was three in the afternoon on a Wednesday. So and, clearly they should be working. Yeah. And we're like, where is everybody for, <laughs> you know, supplying 95% of the steel in China or wow. 90, however, whatever the number is. Yeah. Um, you know, we thought it was a little, a little interesting yeah. that we didn't see him, but did you watch, um, American factory on Netflix? No. Was it good? It was, it was really good. Um, I, I'm not going to say anything about the filmmakers, but the, the content was incredible because it was, it was this, old GM factory in Dayton, Ohio that had been purchased by a company that makes glass from China. And so it was kind of a big deal for the town of Dayton. I think it was Dayton because they were, they were hit so hard by the, you know, great uh, recession, 2009, all that stuff that this GM factory closed. And I don't know how thousands and thousands of people were without a job. So when China came in, I think in like 2013 or 14 or something, um, 
they bought the factory. They said, we're going to start producing glass for car companies um, in the U.S. because we make it for Toyota over in China and it's way too expensive to ship over. And so they wanted to invest in the U.S. And so all these workers got hired back um, to work back at this plant, but they brought over a ton of Chinese workers to teach the Americans how to make the glass. And it, dude, it, if you want to watch a clash of cultures, it was the coolest thing to see like these blue collar. I mean, Dayton's a very diverse place. So it was black people, white people, um, older people, younger people, but like you could tell all of them just wanted jobs, you know, and they used to make $27 an hour or whatever at this GM factory. Mm -hmm. And then this glass company opens and they're making like 1250 an hour. But it's, it's so interesting to see them interact with the Chinese people because they want to put their eight hours in every day. They want to go home. They want to spend time with their families. But these Chinese people are, they've grown up to where they think they need to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And so all these Chinese workers think the Americans are super lazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was so interesting to watch. And then they brought like the middle management of the American company, um, well, middle management and then like the CEO, they brought him over to China to see how the Chinese do it at their factory there. And it's like all these kind of like fatter, <laughs> blue collar dudes yeah. in China. I mean, it's just, it's it's such an interesting watch yeah. if you're interested in watching it. Yeah, it's called no, American Factory. Good to know. Yeah, yeah, no, that would be super interesting. Yeah. I always find it fascinating when you, when you talk about the clash of different cultures, right? Like isn't that part of the reason why everybody goes and likes to travel the world is to get that experience and educate Dude, themselves on how different we are from them and how different they are from us. And that's to know. me, that's the coolest part of traveling is to see how people do things differently. Totally. And one of the things that I always thought was so fascinating was the, um, kind of the education standards or systems that, that they have in China, right? Like you have to test, to test, to test, to get into to the university or whatever. And yeah. Just how the the brightest minds are the ones that are are Cream the most. The crop, right? Yeah, are the ones that are have are afforded the option of being educated. And, yeah. um, you know, it's it, it's kind of shitty, but uh, there's no but. But I just think it's so interesting that. Yeah. You know, again, it, it just talks about the cultures and how different they are, and and, um, you know, to your point on. Uh, the work ethic and stuff like that. It's like they, this is how they were brought up. Yeah. And it's know? not and, like, it's not that the Americans are lazy. It's just that the Americans have a different sure. idea of what hard work is. And sure. maybe they appreciate their free time and family time a little bit more than, sure. than those workers would. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, it's pretty interesting. It is. Um, all right. So we've done over an hour and a half. Uh, I would like to, if, if you have a message, like you, you listened to the first episode, right? I did. And how Debbie had kind of a nice message at the end. God. Well, and you don't have to, if you don't want to, yeah. um, I, a good message I think is people need to travel more. Yeah. Get out there, experience more cultures. I think that's what, um, you know, that's what it's all about is, is seeing, uh, how everyone's different from you and, and, uh, you know, experiencing, um, you know, the world today because it's always changing and, and, uh, you know, go have fun doing it. Awesome. Cool. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Spence. Did you have fun? Great. All right. Awesome. <laughs>